Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope that you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It is a jam-packed show, so let's not mess around here off the top. Later on, we're going to meet Martin Freeman. You know, the Emmy, BAFTA, and Screen Actors Guild Award winning actor from playing Tim Canterbury in the original British series of The Office. He was Dr. John Watson in the British crime drama series Sherlock, opposite everyone's favorite Benedict Cumberbatch. He was Bilbo Baggins in the Hobbit film trilogy and will soon be seen in Black Panther Wakanda Forever, reprising the role of Everett K. Ross. Today we talk about his newest project, the critically acclaimed police series The Responder, now playing on BritBox. Can you just sort yourself out, please? If you let them see how much life is getting to you, they're going to use it against you, mate. You have got to keep it inside. Do you understand? First, though, let's get to know Elamin Abdul-Mahmoud. He is the host of CBC's weekly pop culture podcast, Pop Chat. He's the co-host of CBC's political podcast, Party Lines, and a frequent commentator for CBC News. He's a culture writer for BuzzFeed and now adds author to his list of credits with the release of a new book called Son of Elsewhere, a memoir in pieces. In this interview, we discuss moving to Canada from Sudan at age 12, in addition to wrestling, turn-of-the-century metal bands, and the influence of TV shows like The O.C. Elamin Abdul-Mahmoud joined me via Zoom. It's cool when the book comes, right? Have you had the box of books delivered to your house yet? Yeah. And so tell me about that, because when my first book came out, I sat and stared at that box for ages, (laughs) because I knew once you open it, that part of the dream is gone. The book exists, you know? And then, then you have to think, Man, do I have to write another one right away? How, how does this work? What What was your thought? Uh, when you open the box, you know, I think like there's something about the hardcover and like the final print of a cover because like mm-hmm. you, you know you get to see the the first version of it, the, the 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 advanced reading copy, and you're like, oh, this will look different when we're doing the real thing. <laughs> um, but then when it really comes, you're like, oh, this is this is it, man. Like this is this cover, this image, this physical thing is meant to carry my story out. of the world um you just kind of feel i felt really lucky i felt really lucky to be like this is a, this is going to be my ambassador to the world you know um felt really overwhelmed by it did not have the urge or feeling to be like oh i gotta go write another one i was like oh no this is this is done let's never do this again no i'm joking uh hopefully we'll do this again at some other point but um i uh, was really grateful enough to just kind of be in that moment and it is cool when you put it up on the bookshelf you know, behind you with all the other books that you love, that your name appears sort of along the spine of all the other books that you love. Yes, hundred percent. And also, like I, so I have, I'm one of those people that have their books sorted by color, um, and so I, I am really, and I love that. You know, um, so as a result, my book doesn't show up. It's not like alphabetical. You know, it's right. uh, just somewhere in the middle of my bookshelf. I was like, oh, I recognize my name. It's me, and, it's, <laughs> and there's, a, there's a there's a touch of joy that comes from that. So. And you are a seasoned writer. Uh, a lot of your writing has been online for places like BuzzFeed and that sort of thing. Yeah. What is the difference between writing about uh, popular culture concerns for a website versus writing for the book, which it will have probably more of a life than some of the things that we would write online? Yeah. It's lonelier. Uh, <laughs> it really is. It's lonelier. It's longer. Um, and... I would say the chief difference um, is that you're constantly wrestling with your own conception of 
an audience. Um, mm-hmm. Because in, in writing for the internet, I sort of know the kind of people who come to read our website. I sort of know, you know, the ideas that they're engaging with. They probably, I know like what other stuff on the internet they've probably seen in relationship to the topic that I'm writing about, mm-hmm. you know, but with, with the book, um, there's a sort of constant internal dialogue of, am I writing this for me or am I writing this for a specific audience in mind? And um, it is a collection of essays. Some of those essays are like, oh, wow, I'm really just indulging myself here. Like I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm asking a lot of readers to go along with this journey. Um, and then the others where I sort of know who the audience is for a specific essay and how they go to look at it. Um, and so I think, uh, yeah, those are, those are the big differences. I will add that the, lo- the lonelier part is that like, you know, um, I write a page or write two pages and I get to show them um, to my wife and she sees them and she says, these are great. Now you should probably make them sound like, you know, you, you should probably put your voice into here. And I say, what do you mean? I don't know what you're talking about. I am in here. I can see myself all over this page. And then an hour later, I'm like, ah, damn it. She's right. And then I got to go back through it and figure out the ways that I want to show up on the page. Um, It was always kind of a, you know, a delicate balance. Well, this book is very specific in a lot of the details, but I think there's a universality to some of the stories uh, that whether you came from Sudan when you were 12 years old, or you have felt like an outsider in your day-to-day life, uh, for whatever reason, uh, that you may find some common ground here uh, in this book and some of the ideas that are in this book. Because then you're just, you're mining truth, right? You're sort of forgetting all of the, um, the, the trappings and the, and the bells and whistles, and you're just mining the truthful feeling. You're saying, I kind of felt like this. Have you ever felt like this this one time? And then sort of people have a sort of maybe a closer um, and more honest um, relationship with that feeling. You're listening to El Amin Abdul-Mahmoud on The Richard Krauss Show. Buy his book, Son of Elsewhere, a memoir in pieces wherever fine books are sold. I think my hope was that, you know, as I sort of tell this expansive story, like maybe you didn't move from Sudan when you were 12 to a place where you didn't speak English, but you probably felt that, like an outsider in some spaces. And, you know, can we share some of that feeling? Is there is an overlap between the way that I felt like an outsider and the ways that you felt like an outsider and the ways that you had to contort yourself to fit in versus the ways that I had to contort myself to fit in? Um, that, that was the hope. The hope is that like those parts are like, oh yeah, I've had to do this dance, you know? Um, and hopefully people relate to that part. Well, popular culture seems to be the glue that binds a lot of us together. But I often get asked uh, by people when they know of my love of popular culture, they sort of chide me a little bit saying, oh, it's not important. Why don't you write about something important? How do you respond to that? I know that how I respond, which is usually angrily, but <laughs> how is it that you uh, respond? I mean, I go, you know, do you, is this, when you were a young child and you're trying to relate to other people, did you walk up to them and say, boy, how about that inflation we're having? Is that how you sort of try to relate to them? Or did you use a different access point of, do we love the same stories? Do we, are we drawn to the same things? Um, the ways that pop culture connect us um, are universal because these are the stories that we're swimming in all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they are essentially the things that we have in common. Um, and for me, uh, that was sort of, you know, an extra step because I came, you know, again at 12 um, and I would more or less, I sort of, for the first few years, treated it almost like an anthropologist of like, okay, so people here like these things. That's really strange. Let me try to understand what that is. I 
my relationship with the radio, I'm not even sure it was pleasant. It was like, I'm sitting there and I'm taking notes about like the songs that are, you know, um, playing on the radio um, so that I can better sort of understand what are the things that are popular and why are they the things that, that are popular? Because when you understand the things that are popular with people, then you begin to understand people. You're like, what is, what is it that makes this song in this moment the biggest thing that people are connecting with? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't have a curiosity about that, then I'm not sure you have a curiosity about the people that you live around as a whole. I think like we, I have such like a strong desire to spend um, time with pop culture moments and try to say, this is the popular thing. Why is this thing the popular thing and not any of the other 25 things that are around at the same time? And I think when you have an answer to that, then you can sort of begin to explain what people are into, what they're going through. Um, you know, we see this like right now with, you know, TV shows that people are watching during the pandemic, for example. I think that's good deeply telling. What are you turning to for comfort? Are you turning towards real horror displayed on the screen? Because you're like, okay, life can't get any more horrific. So why don't I watch real horror on the television? Or is it pure escapism for you? You know, mm-hmm. those are things that I think about all the time. I think to me, pop culture is like not... It's not frivolous. It's like a key to decoding people around me. Pop culture is our culture. Exactly. You know, and the things that you can touch and see and breathe and, and interact with on a daily basis, uh, that is pop culture. And that makes it important because it helps shape who we are. It's interesting to me to see uh, what kinds of music that you were drawn to when you moved here uh, as a youngster. Um, Heavy metal spoke to you in a way that Sudanese music didn't because uh, Sudanese music tends to be uh, uplifting and hopeful and joyful, whereas you found the anger in heavy metal music to be very appealing. And it wasn't because the turmoil of being 15 years old and just trying to figure it out uh and and metal spoke to you in that way yeah there's really nothing like a like a song that comes along and says actually you're just allowed to scream shut up when i'm talking to you you know like that's <laughs> that's a that's a deeply peer, powerful moment yeah. especially when you need it um especially when you're having conversations with your parents and they're like you absolutely cannot be out past 8 p.m and you go, but like, that's where all my friends are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, um, the anger that I was feeling from the ways that I would say like my parents at the time felt like they needed to sort of keep um, keep the house a little bit tighter. Um, like they're, of course, unsure about this new land that we just came to. And they're like, mm-hmm. okay, how is our teenage son going to interact with all of this? And so at the time, they, I think I think they would say they overcorrected in terms of the, 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 the protectiveness. And as a result... Um, I uh, felt quite angry, but it felt quite caged. And and Sudanese music does not do caged particularly well. But you know what does? Linkin Park does. You know, um, Disturbed do. You know, those are the bands that I found myself turning to in those moments because it was like, they're angry, I'm angry, let's be angry together. And then maybe by the end of the song, I'll feel a little bit better. You're listening to Elamine Abdul Mahmoud on The Richard Krause Show. His book, Son of Elsewhere, A Memoir in Pieces, is available now wherever you buy fine books. You got there hours early, but you got to see the sound check, so that's cool. I did, but I didn't mean to. Um, <laughs> I, I was so excited by being there. That, you know, as I was like, we were walking around trying to find food and there was like this door that was propped open. I didn't know what that door was, um, but suddenly like I recognized this baseline bursting through this door. I just like ran in without really thinking. Um, and and then there there was a band doing, doing a little sound check, which was great. What was your mom's takeaway from that concert? 
I didn't really understand why anyone would want to spike their hair. That was not, you know, that was like a, that was like a big question for her. Like, why do they do that? And also mosh pits. Why? Um, as much as I tried to explain um, the appeal of mosh pits, she would not having it. It was the use of music as a weapon tour uh, two. So they would have been 2003. 2003. So shortly after 9-11, you were a Muslim teen growing up in Kingston, Ontario, in and around that time. Um, you talk about it in the book, but tell me a little bit about what that was like for you and, and if there was a, a an imprint that that left on you. I think the question marks are the things that you remember, you know, um, the ways that people just kind of like, Hey, the people who did this are Muslim. You're Muslim. Is there a relationship here? Is there, you know, is there, is there some kind of connection that you have to this? Um, and then you remember, well, I remember the, the first Eid, the first Eid after nine 11 um, and uh, seeing two police cars parked outside of the mosque. And I think it would have been useful if we even seen the police officers, but we didn't. We, we had no idea where they were. We just saw the two police cars. And you just sort of immediately start to ask, are they here to protect us or are they here for us? I don't know which, I don't know which it is. Um, and I don't have to jump to either conclusion to know that my relationship with that mosque had changed after that, right? It sort of become a different space because of this. Um, and so, I don't know. I think uh, those were the sort of two key experiences that I remember um, Quite vividly. Reinvention is important for any teen. We find it, I think, uh, you know, in in any number of avenues, right? Yeah. What was it about wrestling for you uh, that allowed reinvention? Well, wrestling is about characters, right? I mean, mm -hmm. wrestling more than anything else is theater, um, and maybe it doesn't appear to be very clearly theater at the time, but you know, looking back at it, you're like. Oh, we're just watching Shakespeare, but with a few body blows. Like that's all this is, you know. Like, there's a relatively clear good guy, and there's a relatively clear yep. bad guy, and, and and you can tell the bad guy pretty quickly from the booze of the crowd. Um, and so for me, like wrestling was like the first kind of like, oh, I can follow this drama because I don't speak English well enough to know everything that's going on in front of me, but I know who to boo because <laughs> the crowd is booing them. You know, um, and then you go from there um, to. I sort of found this wrestling fan fiction community at the time. Um, at the time, we'd, we did not call it wrestling fan fiction. We called ourselves efeds. This was the sort of world. It was this world of, you know, we it was a uh, an electronic federation, and we would have all these battles. And by these battles, we mean each person essentially had to write a few short stories, and then these short short stories would be compared to one another and to be compared to one another for anything that you sort of measure literature for, which is to say like, how strong is the imagery? How strong is the writing? Um, and then whoever wrote a better um, role play, whoever wrote a better short story um, would be the person that wins the championship that day. And I started like everybody else, sort of like trying to mimic like what a day in the life of the undertaker would have been like. But by the end of my, uh, my, I was about to call it my, um, my fan fiction career. That's what I was about to call it. <laughs> Let's call it that. By the end of my fan fiction career, um, I, you know, I was, I, I, I sort of created my own character who was a composite of a couple of kids that I knew in school. Um, and, and I won some championships with that dude, you know? So I, I don't know, like that, uh, that meant a lot to me that period of time. You're listening to Elamine Abdul Mahmoud on the Richard Krauss show. Find his book, Son of Elsewhere, a memoir in pieces, wherever you buy fine books. Was that a, a time of, of really kind of establishing yourself? How important was online for you? 
me, I could literally just inhabit different characters. I can inhabit different worlds without having to worry about my accent, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Without having to worry about, um, without having to worry about the way that I'm dressed that day, yeah. without having to worry about whether I'm going to be understood. The only thing that I had to do was write. Um, and I, I was a terrible writer at the start. That's fine. You could get better. Um, yeah. And as a conservator continued to get better at it, you could, I could hide better in that world. So I don't know. For me, like that was a that was a great comfort I found because it was just it was just so much, it just took all the complications out of every other arena. So there's a lot of personal information uh, in here, uh, and there's one story about uh, Emily, your wife, and and sort of just getting you're getting to know one another. Your parents were not uh, embracing at first, yeah. um, so. Tell me a little bit about writing about that, because you're burying yourself in a way that, um, and, and someone else. It's yeah. one thing to write about yourself, but you're bringing in uh, other people into this a little bit. So tell me a little bit about writing that and and what that process was like for you. Listen, it wasn't, uh, I can't lie and say that it was easy to write. It wasn't. Mm. Um, that was a period of time that I had to handle quite sensitively, again, because it sort of it ended well, you know, and <laughs> yeah. it, I, I, like, we're married now. We've been married for 10 years. Uh, my dad, who did not come to our wedding, um, has a great relationship with us. Um, and What was the turning point, do you think, there? I don't know. I wish I, I, wish I knew, but there was yeah. just one day where it was like, oh, I've been, you know, I've been wrong. And yeah. I'm not one of those people who are like, tell me all the ways you've been wrong. <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, I'll, that's great. I'll take it. I don't need to know any more information. Right. Like, right. If we can resume some kind of relationship that I'm just thrilled um, about that. I don't want to ruminate in that place. Um, and so, but as a result, like writing about the difficult years was a difficult balance because I had to sort of be honest and mm-hmm. tell the truth about what it was like to go through that, but also leave space for redemption and leave space for um, coming together later and what that coming together looks like. And so um, I'm really proud of that. I'm really excited about how that story ended, I think. Was that always part of the book? No, I knew I knew that that had to go in the book. Um, mm-hmm. I think I I sort of had to be sensitive about the way that I framed it because you know both my parents are alive. They will read this. They will interact with it. People will ask them about it. Um, and so there's a certain level of like needing to protect them too um, as I sort of craft the story, um, but also get a chance to be truthful about what that felt like to live through. Read a quote from you recently where you say, I don't know which world is home. I feel like a son of elsewhere. Did this book force you to focus your thoughts about that at all or reconsider or or just have another think about that sort of situation for you? Sure. I, uh, I've been in Canada for 22 years. Um, I lived in Sudan for 12 years. Um, I, it doesn't feel correct to me to sort of say like, well, Canada's home because I think there's, it is obviously home. I'm not going anywhere. I love living here. This is my home. Um, but at the same time, there's a part of me that doesn't, that isn't from here. Um, and I have to ask, what is that part owed? Um, and sometimes it is owed time. You know, I don't know if I make enough time to remember, remember my Sudanese lineage. Uh, I don't know if I make enough time to keep in touch with my relatives in Sudan. And as a result, I'm like, oh, I'm not paying my dues to the other part of me. I'm not paying my dues and my responsibility to the other side of me. And so as a result, you just kind of feel suspended as, you know, you're like, 
oh, this isn't quite settled, but the other place isn't home either. And, mm. and I sort of had to make a little bit of peace with this elsewhere, this idea of living in the middle, suspended between the two places and what this means. Um, and that's, that's what the book is. You know, the, the book is sort of an attempt to um, understand, wrap my mind around what that middle space is. Find Elamine Abdul-Mahmoud's book, Son of Elsewhere, a memoir in pieces, wherever you buy fine books. My guest, Martin Freeman, is a familiar face. The English actor has won the Emmy, a BAFTA, and a Screen Actors Guild Award, and played the beloved character Tim Canterbury in the original British series of The Office. He was Dr. John Watson in the British crime drama Sherlock, opposite Benedict Cumberbatch. He was Bilbo Baggins in the Hobbit film trilogy, and will soon be seen in Black Panther Wakanda Forever, reprising the role of Everett K. Ross. Today, we'll talk about his newest project, the critically acclaimed police series The Responder, now playing on BritBox. In the new show, he plays a Liverpool, England-based first responder. Night after night, he faces crime, violence, and addiction on the streets whilst battling against personal demons that threaten to destabilize his work, his marriage, and his mental health. The dark humor is sometimes painfully tragic and always challenging. When he's forced to take on a new rookie partner, both soon discover that survival in this high-pressure, relentless twilight world depends on them either helping or maybe destroying each other. Martin Freeman joined me via Zoom from England. You're supposed to be a police officer. Command. There's no rest for the wicked, and you've all been should know that. It's such important work. Is it? He's a mess. He should be under arrest. You okay? I can't remember the last time I did something good. You have now, you say that once you were sent the scripts for The Responder, and here's mm -hmm. the quote, after reading the first few pages, I felt like this was really something else. You must get sent a lot of stuff. Your desk is probably piled with scripts. What made this one feel different? Because it felt like um, it had been written by someone who means it. Mm. And it felt like it had been written by someone who wanted to say what they wanted to say, as opposed to a committee of people sort of dictating what uh, should be said. Um, and it felt in, in the nicest possible way that, you know, that I can say about Tony Schumacher, who is the writer of Responder. It felt like someone who didn't quite know um, all the rules. So he didn't quite know what he shouldn't be doing, you know, so, he, uh, and, and I like that. I like, um, I like it when someone, when somebody's writing something because they really, really want to, as opposed to, you know, it wasn't a commission. Let's do a thing set in Liverpool about a copper. It was something that very much from his heart. And, um, and that doesn't necessarily make something a good piece of writing. Obviously mm -hmm. we, we have all got a story. We've all got history. It doesn't mean that we can all write a great screenplay, but, um, I liked the economy of it. I liked that there weren't big explosions and car chases everywhere. And it, it wasn't um, super, super plot heavy. It wasn't procedural. It wasn't kind of police procedural. It was about the inner workings of this um, man uh, and also the inner workings of some of the people around him as well. Um, so it wasn't so much to do with him being a policeman. It was just to do with him being a man in the midst of um, a, a meltdown, really. 
Well, he's described uh, being in the police as like uh, some long LSD trip is the quote that I read from him about this. And the show certainly has not a surreal quality, I don't think. But Mm -hmm. there are things that happen uh, during this show that I think people would find uh, surprising. And I think uh, the more surprising, though, uh, the 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 moment might be uh, like uh, when Chris, your character, finds mm-hmm. an eighty five year old woman uh, who's dead, and there's yeah. a pack of cigarettes uh, next to her, and he takes one of her cigarettes, and there's yes. you know there there's things that 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 yes. seem kind of outlandish, but yes. I'm sure that they're probably based in fact and based I in truth. They, I think they are. I think a lot of a lot of the things because um, Tony, the writer, was in the police for eleven or twelve years, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of the stuff that's in the show was either based on stuff that he had done himself or seen himself or had heard other people do. And of course, writer's imagination, of course, you know, it's it's not a documentary about his life. Um, You know, my character also goes through her paperwork to see if there's any money about, you know, so like he's, he's not, um, he's not Gandhi, right. But he's also, he's not, he's not a terrible person, but he's, um, he is a very frustrated um, man who's, sort of in the middle of a kind of breakdown, I think, and completely disenchanted with his job, tired beyond all recognition, emotionally and physically tired. And he's kind of at the end of his tether. So yeah, him nicking her cigarettes or nicking her, you know, her little flask of soup yeah. and and also going through to see if there might be any money knocking about is, of course, um, either odd or just wrong. Right. It's, you know, like nicking the cigarettes, that's a bit odd. And, you know, you would you would you would hope someone's not doing that to your mother or grandmother. You're listening to Martin Freeman on The Richard Krauss Show. His new show, The Responder, is streaming right now on BritBox. But somehow I, th- I think I hope we still have him as a. If not a hero, then a good protagonist, you know, because clearly he, this is not an advertisement for a great policeman of how policing sh- should be done. Uh, but nor is it actually a complete indictment of the police. I think you see. Um, him and his colleagues trying their very best in difficult circumstances. Do you think that uh, post-pandemic, hmm. after two years of people being locked down, uh, people's frustrations rising to the fore, hmm. that a, a character like Chris, mm-hmm. uh, who does operate slightly outside the boundaries, hmm. is more relatable to people now than it might have been two or three years ago? Possibly. I think on the one hand, yes. And on the other hand, it might be more um, condemned, I suppose, Mm. than two years ago because of some of the changes that have happened in, well, at least in the West, I guess. Um, I think people, I think there'd be some people who would be more ready to judge the police and maybe more people and and maybe some people more ready to, to understand uh, someone at the end of their tether, maybe. Yeah. So maybe a bit of both. The show was set in Liverpool, England. Mm. Uh, I think when most people think of Liverpool, England, certainly where I'm sitting here in Canada, mm. we mm. think of football and we think of of the Beatles. Um, yeah. What perspective did working on this show and shooting in Liverpool give you about the city that perhaps you didn't have before? Well, I suppose to be fair, I have a slightly. Uh, I'm closer to Liverpool than 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 a Canadian, <laughs> yeah. so, I start, so I I think of a slightly more than the Beatles and football, although those things are pretty um, central to the identity of Liverpool, it's true. Um, uh, that it's a varied city, that there are um, more well-off bits. There is, I mean, because I think what everyone understands is that, you know, Liverpool has been racked by a lot of deprivation for a long, long time. 
but also there are middle class bits and leafy suburbs and you know kind of more the more kind of posh areas of liverpool as well and it's all kind of in one you know that all goes into the melting pot of what makes liverpool um unfortunately because it was during pandemic i couldn't explore liverpool the way that i would have liked because it was closed down i mean like as right. every, everywhere was pretty much locked down um it opened up a little bit more as the filming went along but what i've always understand about liverpool you know outside of the stereotypes it is you know i mean all stereotypes have a, have a kernel of truth and the humor is definitely true you know the, the speed of humor the, the reliance on humor to get over bad times is definitely true um, I think Liverpool does see itself quite proudly as a, as a city of stand-up comedians, I guess. Um, and there is truth in that. Um, and that can be fantastic and sometimes a little bit wearing as well because <laughs> people are certainly going to tell you when you're not getting it. You know, If, you, if you're falling short, you're definitely going to um, be told. Uh, but no, I mean, gen generally pretty pretty friendly, you know. I think I think they, as everybody does, I think, I think the people of Liverpool probably get tired if they feel they're misrepresented mm -hmm. or if they feel they're um, misunderstood or stereotyped too much. And so that was obviously something that I have zero interest in. I'm not, I, you know, I'm not from Liverpool, as you know, and, um, and I certainly don't want to come as an outsider to take the mickey out of Liverpool or to say, do a sort of SNL skit on Liverpool. Right. Um, Tony is a scouser, so he has no interest in that. Um, our producer, Rebecca is from Liverpool. So, yeah, we, we wanted to honour the story, really. The story isn't about Liverpool, but I think Liverpool inevitably becomes a bit of a character in, in the story. But it really, it could have been set, it could have been set in any major city, probably, because the stresses and strains of A, family life, and B, um, doing that job in a major conurbation is pretty difficult you know that's it's a thankless a literally a thankless task a lot of the time you're listening to martin freeman on the richard krauss show his new show the responder is on britbox right now it's streaming over there i can't remember the last time i did something good well, I think we learn about that in the therapy session scenes. We we come to understand a little bit more uh, about the mindset of what it takes to do that job. Um, mm. When you were shooting those scenes, or I guess when you were reading those scenes and learning mm. about the character, were those scenes particularly helpful to you? Were they more revealing and helping you build the character of Chris? Or are they just more words on the page that become part of the whole uh, experience? I think they are very instructive. Because a lot of the time, I suppose, like with, um, you know, when Tony Soprano goes to see Dr. Melfi, you know, yeah, you, you yeah. get to see something that a character s says to that person that they're not saying to anybody else. Mm -hmm. I mean, the stakes aren't quite as high for Chris as they are for Tony Soprano, but um, <laughs> he's not going to be killed if he's found out that he's going to therapy. But it, in that way that you have a person, almost like a symbolic person, that you are able to offload on, that Chris is not doing at any other point in his life. He stopped communicating well with his wife, who, who he loves and who loves him, but he stopped communicating with her. Um, he doesn't really do it at work on the job because that's not seen as the place to do it either. Um, and I think hopefully what the show, what the program shows is that the therapist as well, Lynn, you know, is trying her best, you know, and the, the system is failing everyone desperately <laughs> because there isn't enough money, there isn't enough time, there's not enough budget. But she's trying her best. She's juggling 50,000, well, not that many, but she's juggling patients all over the place, all of whom basically have PTSD at the very least. Um, and she's not able to give them everything that they need either. You know, So 
sort of no one's winning from it, you know, so it's Chris doesn't ever come out of those uh, therapy sessions, a new man or an invigorated man thinking, my God, that really, really helped. It's just another, I mean, sometimes it's another little indignity, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, those sessions, you know, and he, he felt that he comes out of there frustrated, but it is, it's instructive to answer your question because he is at least saying the things he's trying to articulate the things that are killing him really the things that are slowly doing him in. Well, I found him to be kind of an unreliable narrator, though, at, right. at certain points. There's a scene where uh, he's talking to his mother, played by the amazing Rita Tushingham, which must have yeah. been a, a, yeah, a lovely, thrill yeah. to, to work opposite. Uh, and yeah. she says, uh, well, you know, Chris, everyone matters, or some paraphrasing, but she says yeah. everyone matters. And he says, well, they don't, not really. Yeah. And I don't believe him. I think that, that was his first response. And I'm not exactly sure why he would say that mm. to his mother, but mm. I didn't believe him when he said it. But I was like, maybe I do have to take this character at face value. Maybe he doesn't really believe that they do, but I didn't believe I th- him. I think I, I, well, this is interesting. This is a, a conversation over a pint, but I, I, I do believe him. I, I, really? I do believe him. And not because he, not because cosmically he thinks people don't matter, but he thinks the end result of, um, his job and his many, many years, you know, because Chris, we're sort of saying Chris has been in that job at least 20 years, right? He has come to realize that even though, of course, on paper and in our hearts, we all know everyone cosmically matters the same. The end result is no, they don't. You're listening to Martin Freeman on The Richard Krause Show. His gritty new police drama, The Responder, is now streaming on BritBox. Chris does not matter as much as the prime minister and he doesn't as matter as much as his local MP. You know, like there are degrees of who matters more just in actual fact of the results of how our lives go. I think that was his cynicism speaking as opposed to mm. his wish, you know, and I think his fervent hope would be, of course, everyone matters. That's how he's been brought up, obviously, by his mum. Mm-hmm. And that's how most of us are brought up, right? But the end result is, well, you know, if if you think the <laughs> the guy begging on the street matters as much as the guy who works in Wall Street, well, I mean, he doesn't. He he, mm-hmm. he actually doesn't. And we, uh, um, the evidence is, look where he is, and look where he is. If you don't open this door, I'm coming through it, and then I'm going to come through you. I'm going to count to three. One, two, all right. The job has ruined me. There's blood on me boots and it never stops. It's such important work. You need to focus on the good that you do. Get back! Can you just sort yourself out, please? No, I'm alright. You said that last time. Rachel Hargreaves, she's partnered with Carson for the rest of the week. God help her. Uh, tell me about working with Rita Tushingham. Uh, though she's a, a, a legend, top to bottom. Uh, so mm. great to see her in things yeah. again. She was. Yes. She took a little bit of time away. Mm. She's back in things now. Tell she me is, about working yeah. with her. Yeah, she was lovely. You know, I mean, those the scenes um, throughout the series. There's a few scenes with Rita um, that I had, and they're pretty intense. You know, they mm. they go from uh, cagey to very intense, and. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we were delighted to get her, um, you know, as it is when when you get to work with someone you've been watching since you were a little boy and someone who was doing it before way before I was yeah. born. It's like that's a that's a real pleasure. And an even bigger pleasure is to know that she's um, she's a team. I always just like people who are a team players. You come in. Right. Are we going to share this scene? Are we going to do the job? And if so, I'm happy. And she was, yeah, she was delightful. She was really lovely. Um, it, it, we all loved, we all loved having her. And it was a, it's a thrill to have people like that. You think, my God, if I mean, if we didn't have enough time, there is never enough time. But you know, she's a person who could be uh, waxing lyrical about 
certain parts of her career and directors yeah. she's worked with and you know going back generations um so yeah i mean maybe one day i'll get to have a another pint with her i'm just doing pints all the time yeah. <laughs> well, after, after the pandemic i think we've all earned it that's <laughs> yeah, the thing yeah. earned the, the right to go out and, and have a pint um that is our time uh, martin thanks so much and I, before you. i let you go look at those glasses that you're wearing so cool well, yours too yeah I, yours too I, I, i'm an aficionado of good eyewear no, and, they're, uh, no, they're yeah. really good man they're really good yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you well, thank you and congratulations on the show Thank you, sir. You've been listening to Martin Freeman on The Richard Krause Show. Check out his great new series. It's on BritBox, streaming over there. It's called The Responder. Takes you to the gritty underbelly of Liverpool, England, and what it's like to be a police officer trying to just get the job done. It's great stuff. Big thanks to Martin Freeman for stopping by. Also, a big thanks to Elamine Abdel Mahmoud for coming by to talk about his book, Son of Elsewhere, a memoir in pieces. It's a great book, lots of funny stories, lots of really insightful stories. And while the subject matter, as we discussed in the interview, is quite specific. It's about coming from Sudan to Canada as a 12-year-old and then discovering popular culture here and trying to find a place here. Uh, the stories are universal. If you've ever felt like an outsider, if you've ever tried to fit in, Son of Elsewhere, a memoir in pieces, might just be for you. And you can find it wherever fine books are sold. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird. We'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>